My name is Bond, James Bond. My instructions were implicit. I was to leave for Jamaica in two hours. License to kill. Now you maybe miss it. You don't miss a thing. I decided to accept your invitation. I have to leave immediately. Just as things were getting interesting again. the tailoring talk show with me your host Roberto Rivilla. I'm a bespoke tailor, menswear designer and owner of Roberto Rivilla London suit and shirt makers. This is the podcast where you drop in for the threads but often leave with something quite unexpected. If you haven't already please support the show by subscribing and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify 
please help us out by leaving a rating and a review. We are celebrating episode 30 by kicking off the massive tailoring talk James Bondathon, where we follow the James Bond series in order, ticking off each movie as each month goes by. My guests and I will be deep diving into each film, covering everything from our overall review and digging into the clothes, the gadgets, the cast, our favourite moments from each instalment, and much, much more. Of course, that means we kick things off with 1962's Dr. No. And I'm joined by Phil, I was going to say Phil, to talk about the very first entry in the 007 saga. Philip, how are you this evening and are you as excited as me to be watching and in many cases revisiting these classic spy movies? It's been uh, fantastic to actually get back into it because um, I saw it a little while ago and I just flipped over it because it was the first time I'd seen it and um, I had no idea that the film was as good as it was and it really has stood the test of time which is why I've really... uh, which is why I really enjoyed it, and I just flipped over it, and then I wanted to see the rest of them afterwards. Yeah, so I saw Doctor No for the first time yesterday, so we're recording on the 17th of January, so I saw it yesterday, Sunday, and um, I have to say, I really enjoyed it. Um, you'd, not see, you'd not seen it before? I'd never seen it, so I'd seen okay. different scenes, so I remembered, obviously the Ursula Andress coming out of the water scene is the one of the most famous moments in movie history, Definitely up in the top 20. Um, I'd definitely seen the scene with the tarantula. Um, but, you know, just kind of bits when it's been on TV or, you know, I, I don't even consciously remember. I mean, I've never sat through that film from start to finish, that's for sure, because uh, the beginning was quite a surprise and the end was, you know, very new to me. So I had no idea what was going to happen in it. Um, but yeah, I actually really, really enjoyed it. Um, so I downloaded it on Apple TV. Um, so I had it in full, f- you know, it's a full 4K restoration with Dolby Atmos and so on. And uh, definitely the way to enjoy it. It looked absolutely stunning because if you watch the original trailers, you can see where the print has aged and there's all the crackling on the screen that you get and the kind of dark spots and so on. And, uh, they, they, for these, for these movies, they've been through a very, very painful restoration process. So they took the original negatives and they fed them very carefully in this specialist scanning machine. Um, and then once everything was sort of scanned in, um, they then had, I guess, digital artists kind of working on every single frame of the film, painstakingly colour correcting, taking out all of the, you know, the kind of ageing and the breaks in the film, in the negatives, and um, joining things together. See, I'm not a fan of that. I'm not a fan of that at all. I much prefer seeing it in its original format because what I'm seeing is I'm seeing it as I saw it in, as people would have seen it in the 60s. Some of that aging, some of it probably wasn't even aging. It was probably how it was made because of the the imperfections that were in the film in terms of that, you know, eight millimeter film that was used. And so that was going to make it. Um, so when you watch it now, if you watch it on the format that you're talking about, you could then compare it with other films that are out now. 
but seeing it in that original format mm. allows me to kind of go back to a place that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And that was another reason why I liked it. Problem for me is I've got an ultra HD curved television and I like to enjoy that thing to its fullest. So I was really, really pleased with the restoration. Yeah. Um, cause yeah, I, like, I mean like, I just like things that look visually stunning and it did look so good. It really did. I know exactly what you mean. There is that sort of charm and nostalgia about the original print. Um, I mean, the trailer, which I played at the intro, the opening to this episode, when you when you watch that back, I mean, you know, that thing looks like someone pulled it out of the bottom of a garbage can and then ran it through a projector. It's aged so not, badly. No, not at all. Yeah, it no, does. not at all. Um, no, not at all. It actually, that they made the trailers completely differently to how they make trailers now. I mean, now you almost get a gist of what the entire film's going to be before you even see it in the oh, there, Well, there... They were able to... That basically was the whole film. It was arty. That was the whole film in two and a half minutes. But it was still very arty, mm. rather than sort of, you know, put it right in your face. Yeah. But then that was the nature of what the film was all about, in the sense that they didn't know what they were doing. In fact, Doctor No is actually the sixth incarnation of the series... They were actually going to make Fundable first, but they actually made this one because it was just going to be easier for them to make. And they actually had something where they didn't know what the format was going to be, but they, they did what was um, very similar at the time. So there's other movies of the time, films like Barbarella, where they've got a similar open with the very colourful sort of visuals that you see at the very beginning. But in this first one, you've got groups of different people partying, whereas following... You know, future James Bond films just has the woman, you know, silhouetted in various different colours and with the visuals and stuff like that. Whereas this one just has just the visuals with very, with just random people partying, has the great iconic music, and it's got that grainy sort of sound, which I like listening to. Mm. It took me back. I really enjoyed we'll it. D- we'll talk about the intro shortly. Um, just Let's just skip back a bit. Um, because before we begin... I think we've really got to say a few words about the man who's responsible for all of this, uh, Mr. Ian Fleming himself. He was born at the turn of the last century, which sounds really weird to say, (laughs) Um, but he was born in 1908. Clever fellow, who was educated at Eton and then educated abroad in both Germany and Austria. And his early career began at Reuters, the news agency, and he then went on from there to become a stockbroker. During the Second World War, he was the assistant to the director of uh, naval intelligence at the Admiralty in London. And it was there at the Admiralty that he basically gained all the experience and met all the people that would provide the sort of backdrop and inspiration for all the characters and incidents that we would then go on to read about and see on screen. After the war, he then became a foreign manager for Kempsey Newspapers and then in '52. At the age of 43, which is a touch younger than you and me, uh, he wrote the very, very first James Bond adventure entitled Casino Royale at his house in Jamaica. And it took him just two months. And after that, he'd then go on to write another 13 James Bond novels. Obviously, we know that there were more because then other authors took up the mantle um, after he passed away. You know, fortunately, he did survive to see the success of James Bond, or at least the initial success, and he got to see his character portrayed on the big screen by Sean Connery in Doctor No and From Russia With Love. 
Um, he also, outside of Bond, wrote a short story for his only son, Casper, while he was recovering from a heart attack in 1962. I mean, I think he had multiple heart attacks, which, um, you know, I don't know if that was down to his lifestyle, smoking or whatever, but quite strange for someone who was relatively young. Um, but his only son, Casper, <coughs> he wrote wrote this, this little short story about a flying car, um, which we now know as Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Um, and then he died, sadly, two years later in 1964 at the age of just 56. But his legacy will live forever. It's amazing to think of what he achieved and the life, the rich life that he lived in such a relatively short space of time. Um, and you can really, really see a lot of his experience and, you know, the richness of that life, it just comes through in his writing and the the fantastic visuals that he creates in his books. Did you read any of the original Fleming novels at all? I haven't read any of the, uh, the Fleming novels. I mean, as I say, for me, um, James Bond has been a much more recent sort of phenomenon. Um, I started watching the James Bond films only when I was in my sort of late teens, you know, when Pierce Brosnan was uh, doing them. So that's when I was watching them in the cinema because I had that kind of time on my hands, but I didn't really actually start to watch the original ones until very recently. Um, and it's a, it's a far cry from, you know, how we live today and the way th- um, films are made and how TV shows are put on screen and how people are, seen on television and, and on film. Um, and I really wanted to hark back to a period where people were free to kind of express themselves in a way that actually they didn't care so much about uh, certain consequences. It was about making what was a spectacular picture and, you know, who cares about the consequences? Yeah. And that's what I like. I, I own Casino Royale. I bought that when Daniel Craig's Casino Royale came out. But I hadn't actually read any of Fleming's other novels. Um, I did read, when I was in my late teens, I read... I think the author was Sebastian Fawkes, but I'll need to re- look that up. Um, but he kind of continued writing Bond novels long after Fleming had died. And uh, I remember one was called Licence Revoked, which, you know, is kind of the licence to kill kind of theme where he gets his licence taken away. And uh, another one, I think it was called Icebreaker. And I don't remember much about the stories themselves because, I mean, it was a good 20, 25 years ago. But the one thing I do remember is that his writing style very much carried on in the way that Fleming would write. Because one thing Fleming, Fleming is famously quoted as saying that there is only one recipe for a bestseller. You have to get the reader to turn the page. In the same way that Bond as a character is is very sort of hard and very economical and ruthless, Fleming's writing style was quite like that as well. It was very short sentences that would just move you from one beat to the next, from one set piece to the next, and it would really carry you through. His his writing style really carries you through the book, almost like you're on a roller coaster. Um, and you is literally their page turners. You cannot put them down. You can't, you know, very often we'll read books and we'll be like, you know, I'll just get to the end of the next chapter and then I'll call it a night. You know, his, his writing style compels you to just try and read all the way through in one sitting. Um, and it's no wonder that 
obviously they saw the opportunity to turn these wonderful books into films. Um, I do want to go back and actually read them now that I'm reading, now that we're watching all the films as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, as someone who loved creative writing when I was a kid, that you know, this this sort of thing is is right up my street. The movie kicks off, and uh, it was kind of quite jarring for me because, again, like you, Pierce Brosnan was was really my Bond. I mean, I, you could argue Roger Moore was my Bond because that was the one that my parents would always put on for me or sit me in front of when I was a very small child. But I think when you're a small child with Bond, it was always something that was just on in the background or, you know, something yeah. that, you know, you you were kind of really only interested in the set pieces, the action, the gadgets, that was about it, right? And, you know, maybe yeah. if we were lucky, you know, Dad would buy us one of the cars or something like that. But you, you didn't really know exactly what was going on with them. You just knew that there was this guy who would always get girls and, you know, he got these really cool gadgets and these cool gar- cars and then he would have to go and defeat bad people. And it was when Goldeneye came out that that really got me, you know, the the whole... Um, I, don't, I just loved that film. And obviously there was the game as well at the same time, the N64 game which was one of the best games ever made and so therefore I'm used to all of the cold opens that they do for the Bond films with the massive action set pieces before the credits kick in so I don't know how you felt but this was quite jarring for me because it was literally just straight in on on the credits I mean for me because I didn't really have I mean obviously I had seen many of the James Bond the later James Bond films but I just thought to myself well this is the first one so, you know, let's just sort of put everything that I know about it aside and just see what they did. And um, I personally really like the opening because it kicks off in a casino, which is where, which is where I really like to be. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, and the other thing is casinos nowadays, if you've not been to one recently, um, everyone tends to sort of dress in, you know, sweatpants or they're in like, you know, T-shirts. You're not allowed to wear shorts, thankfully. You can't go in like you know, football tops or anything like that. But very rarely will you ever see anyone wearing a suit. And if you sit down at a poker table or a blackjack table or a baccarat table, I mean, not that there's any baccarat tables at any casinos I've been to, but if you sit down at any place and you're wearing a suit, you will look out of place. You will look completely like you shouldn't be there. Or if you sit down at a poker table playing in a suit, you'll look like a noob because you look like you're in fancy dress and everyone will just draw their attention to you. And they'll try and play against you. Uh, whereas in that film, that was the standard dress if you were going to a casino. Otherwise, they wouldn't let you yeah. in. And that's kind of what I want to hark back to. Yeah, me too. Um, I'm totally with you on that. It's got nothing to do with my job. Um, the, 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 the one thing, because I was watching this with Carolina, and she'd never, ever seen it before either. Um, and sort of halfway through the opening credit sequence, then the three blind mice come on. Um, and they play, you know, that sort of Caribbean sort of style sort of tune. And um, we both looked at each other. It was like, uh, what? It was just weird. And then we were just like, okay. But Carolina was like, what, what were people, whoever put these title credits together, what were they smoking? Please find out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, the other significant thing about the casino was that it was 62 and there was no thought to the fact that there was a woman by herself parting with several thousands of pounds on a Baccarat game. 
you know, there wasn't anyone with her. It was her own money. And she was there to have a good time. And she happened to meet by herself. She was uh, independent. She liked the look of James Bond. She accosted him afterwards, even though she'd lost loads of money to him. And what, later on that day, that you know, she's playing golf, you know, in his shirt, mm-hmm. in his uh, apartment. What a, what a legend. Yeah. Both of them. I mean, both of them were fucking legends for that. You know. So, um, so I'm going to give a little, I'm going to give a little synopsis. So, arriving in Jamaica to investigate the suspected murder of a fellow agent and his secretary, James Bond eludes several attempts on his life with the help of CIA agent Felix Leiter and local fisherman Quarrel. Bond follows the sinister trail of Dr. No to his island Crab Key. Shortly after landing on the beach with Quarrel, Bond encounters a luring shell collector, Honey Rider. The three uninvited visitors are hunted down by Dr. No's private army. He plans to destroy the US space program as his first move towards world domination. So there's two reasons for the synopsis there. I mean, one, I actually know there's only one reason. It's so we can refresh our memories on what happened in that film. <laughs> Try and put some... Well, it's true because there was a lot of, there was a lot of like, it did kind of drag a bit because before it get, even gets to the island, because there's a lot of work to try and tell the audience that James Bond is not just some suave, you know, guy who knows how to play cards and maybe knows how to charm one or two people, including maybe his bosses. He actually does recognise and figures out that he's being watched and he, and he uses a lot of just simple skills. He doesn't use any major um, gadgets to realise that someone's been in his room. He just uses simple everyday things you could pick up from the supermarket to realise that someone had been in his room and he was being watched. Mm-hmm. And it was just the more sort of the simple basic things which set this one apart from the more modern ones to try and make sure that uh, he could get, you know, he could figure out what was going on and who was actually watching it. In, in some ways, uh, as much as for the time, it was probably very fresh and very new as a, as a cinema experience for the people that saw it back in the early 60s. For us, it, it was very much an old-school uh, spy movie, especially when you compare it to the modern Bonds of today and then other, you know, action series like the Bourne trilogy and so on. Um but, you know, I mean, we definitely had a hand over our mouths moment, you know, a sort of WTF moment at the very beginning of this film because they, the first sort of location is in Jamaica and we see um, Strangways, who's this, the MI6 station chief out there in, in Kingston. Um, and he very quickly gets murdered by, I'm going to call them th- the three blind mice because that's the the theme that was playing when they were shown on screen for the first time. Yes. But it's basically these three guys who are walking along like they're completely blind. And Strangways is playing cards with three of his colleagues at this club. Um, and basically they sort of kind of walk past and then all of a sudden they use their white sticks to shoot the hell out of him. Well, yeah. no, they don't actually. He goes to go and get something or he goes to his car or something uh, and then they just kind of rock up, like shoot the hell out of him. And then a hearse pulls up. It's all very efficient as well. But I mean, it oh, was yeah. really they violent. Yeah. Um, they yeah, they just bang him up in the the hearse and then the hearse drives off and that's it. He's disappeared. Um, and then the next scene is the um, his his secretary, who's kind of operating the radio and so on. And then they appear at the window 
and they just shoot her in cold blood as well. And then we see them go into the office and they go through the filing cabinet and they take a file which has got Dr. No's name on. Now, there was an interesting thing, the scene with the secretary, because she is obviously an, a, a more mature lady, shall we say. Um, and when you see the shot of her, you know, of her in full, on her hands, you can see the sort of age spots. But then when they do the close-up of her tweaking the volume dials and stuff, it's a very young hand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was like... You, uh, you've, looked at, you've looked at that more closely than really, I, I noticed really it. That. I noticed it immediately. But the thing is, I'm, you know, I'm a movie buff. I, 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 I seem to always pick up on these sorts of things. Or it's the Apple TV with the enhanced UHD. Yeah, I don't even, I don't even think it was, it was that, really. Because even Carolina noticed it as well. Because I said, well, did you notice that? And she goes, yeah. It's like they used a hand model for the close-up. Which she just deems as them being, you know, sexist and all the rest of it. Because um, we can't have a close-up of some, you know, ageing woman's hand. Ugh. Not for Bond's first time on the screen. So then, uh, obviously, the news of Strangway's death reaches M over in uh, in London, who is the head of MI6, as we know uh, today. And he calls James Bond in to investigate the matter. And this is where I got really excited, because... I knew that Sean Connery had a car where the license plate sort of revolved and spikes came out and he also had mud or oil slick or whatever coming out the back of the car and then gun turrets in the headlights. And so, you know, he calls Q in because he he says, you're still using a Beretta. Um, And then Q comes in and Q basically disses his gun and says, yeah, Beretta's fine if you're a woman. And then uh, they tell him he's not going to use that gun. He's going to use a Walter PPK. And then yeah. and he gives him a box with the new gun in. And then he walks out. And that was it. There was, that was, there was Hang no- on a minute. Wait, no, did, did, you not, did they not introduce uh, the gadgets in the box at that time? No. He basically so, so they didn't so he he basically M tells him off for still carrying a Beretta and James Bond says he's used it for ten years and it's never let him down. So there we get a bit of time placement that he's been in service for for that at least that length of time. M calls Q in and Q comes in with a little wooden box and it's got a Walty PPK in it and he tells him it'll sh- you know stop a man dead. Um, you know, re- super reliable. Um, you know, if it's good enough for the CIA, it's good enough for us. Um, it will take a silencer and it won't reduce the stopping power by much, etc., etc. And then he takes, uh, and then he he, ta- he takes Bond's Beretta off him and he walks out. Oh yeah, sorry, I'm getting confused because there's uh, later films where he becomes Q comes a bit become a, becomes a bit more of a character. Yeah. And then he starts introducing more of the uh, gadgets. It doesn't do it. No, so no, that is it. not yeah. at all. Not at all. In fact, I mean, really, the, any gadgets that are in this film are on the baddie side, not Bond. To be fair, now looking back at it is actually quite nice, I think, because it really helped to show off the physicality of Sean Connery. You know, what Bond can actually do when he's not assisted by all this tech. So, So then Bond goes out to to Jamaica because he's got to investigate what's going on and then this is where I was keeping track of the outfits because he turns up at the airport in what initially looks like a brown suit but I think it's actually charcoal 
Then he goes to a grey plaid suit and then a plain grey suit, lighter. And then he has a navy blazer with grey trousers. And he has his tuxedo, obviously. Um, Oh, no, before that, I've skipped ahead because obviously after... Strangways is murdered. We then cut to London to the Ambassadors Club, and that's where we meet Bond for the first time. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Idiot! How could I forget that? Yeah, we talked. We talked. Well, we talked about that earlier. The fact that he was in the casino playing baccarat. Oh yeah, that's it. Yeah. Well, sorry, because I was yeah. trying to talk about the credits, <laughs> and you're already in the film. We're going all over the place here. So we've talked about M and all of that, but before that, we get introduced to James Bond finally. So we have the opening scene with Strangways getting murdered and his secretary getting murdered. And then we cut to the Ambassadors Club in London. And this is where we first meet Bond. Let's talk about Connery's entrance as 007 on the big screen for the first time. How cool was that? I mean, it wasn't even entrance. He was just sitting down. He just looked to his left and he was like, Bond, James Bond. It was just how seriously cool. Lit a cigarette when you could smoke indoors. Yep. Without anyone telling you, you know, excuse me, you think you'll find this is a no smoking uh, area, sir. You know, it was, it was absolutely fantastic. You know, they were playing a professional game of baccarat, and uh, you know, he looked amazing, and uh, he charmed the socks off of that girl and took her money. Yeah, basically. How cool is that? But the thing is, she she introduces herself as Trench Sylvia Trench, doesn't she? And then, uh, yeah. and then he just pauses, sparks his fag up, and then Bond. James Bond. I was like, so cool. And his tux was awesome. Shaw Lapel. He had this sort of Louis Roth turned back cuffs, which you don't see anymore. I don't get to do those for people anymore. People don't really request them unless they're having a smoking jacket made. You know, nice bib front shirt. He just looks physically imposing and also just so cool. And I totally agree with you that, yeah, that's... When you go to a casino... Like, I've never actually been to one before, but imagine if you ever took me on one of your poker nights or whatever. Um, that's how I would turn up dressed. Cause yeah, you probably would, and you'd look completely out of place. Yeah. You'd look completely out of place. Or you'd look like the tournament director or the casino manager, you know, and you were expecting a special guest or something like right. that. But you wouldn't actually be, like, the real deal. Um, it's... Nowadays, people go to casinos to be comfortable um, and to, to escape their daily lives so they don't really make an effort. The women do. The women dress up. The women look glam. But very rarely will you see a man sort of dressed in a suit to go to a casino. That's the perennial problem these days, that women still dress better than guys overall. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, but then there's a lot of w- girls who are at a blackjack table or play poker or something like that. And they'll just be in a hoodie. Um, they'll just be in jeans, um, t-shirt, you know, and um, and then they'll play their cards and, uh, and go from yeah. there, you know. And some of them, and, and it's you know, some of them will sit at the cash tables, you know, with like twenty, thirty thousand in front of them, you know, betting uh, hands of poker, just you know, not thinking twice mm-hmm. about it. But they look like crap. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's, that, it's just really sad. I think. Um, I mean, for me, like, if I got invited to a casino or something, that would be, like, a massive night out. So I'd want to be dressed up for it. 
But yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, outfit-wise, I mean, when, when Bond eventually does get to Jamaica, um, he he just, from the moment he gets off the plane and he's in the airport, he just oozes cool. The way that they... The way that they dressed him for this was just so pleasing to my eye. And also Jack Lord as well. Jack Lord was playing Felix Leiter, the CIA agent. So basically the collaboration yeah. comes in because he's met by the CIA. Uh, they're investigating a case where uh, a rocket launch from Cape Canaveral has been disrupted by someone jamming the radio frequency. So yeah, he, he kind of gets there. And then we have that first kind of car chase type thing where... Um, you know, a guy claims to be a chauffeur sent to collect him and he goes with him. But then it turns out that the guy was basically working for whoever it is that is trying to kill Bond. Um, and that's where we see Sean Connery's first kind of fight, which Caroline is a massive fan of the Bond movies and she's and the Daniel Craig ones as well. <laughs> the Daniel Craig Bond films. Yeah. And to that yeah. fight with the chauffeur, she just went pathetic. Yeah, it's, it's uh, a bit harsh. That was a thing. Yeah, there wasn't a, there wasn't a lot you could do. You know, there was however however many frames, so they had to be able to get it all in, didn't they? So you couldn't just have really fast action; otherwise, it wouldn't have been. But seen. also, as well, it kind of for me, it fits in more with his with Fleming's kind of district district. Oh God, I can't talk today. I'm so tired. So tired, Phil. Um, it fits in with. Um, Fleming's description of the character, which is a blunt instrument wielded by a government department, hard, ruthless, sardonic, fatalistic. He likes gambling, golf and fast motor cars. All his movements are fast and economical. And the fast and economical bit, I thought he ticked all the boxes or, you know, the fight choreographers ticked all the boxes. I think so. I mean, the um, the thing about it is that at that time, you know, they they didn't have a lot of inspiration from uh, the Far East or anything like that. They weren't sort of taking... The only sort of, like, films that they could really base it on was uh, the Westerns and things like that. That's all they had in the 60s. So there, there was only so much that... Not only that they could do, but also what the audience would be able to make sense of. You know, because they had to be able to sort of keep it in line with what else was going on at the time. I think that was a fact. Yeah. He goes through some outfit changes quite quickly because he turns up in that sort of darker grey suit and then in the evening when he goes to meet Felix Leiter at the club, um, he's in a lighter plain grey suit and then Felix Leiter's wearing this really cool light brown kind of taupey sort of suit with a brown tie um, and I thought it looked really cool. It's very typically American because the Americans will always go for the Browns and so on, or that's what we kind of know them for. Um, whereas, you know, us Brits tend to like our navies and greys quite a bit. All two-button single-breasted. Um, again, Carolina commented that everything was really boxy and, you know, didn't fit them properly, but I was trying to explain to her that that was the sort of style in those days, and I thought it actually worked quite well because Connery is quite a big, tall guy, you know? He's quite broad-shouldered yeah. and, you know... I think the tailoring being a little bit looser on him actually helped to accentuate that. It just sort of kind of almost cover up some of that power that's under the hood with him. But also the suits had to accommodate the fact these guys are carrying guns. 
they had to be able to easily access those as well. That was the other. Oh, this is true. I didn't even think about that. They all carry. They all carry guns. They've all got them right in there. They need to be able to get to them easily. Yeah. If they're too tight, then they're going to see yeah, it. That's it exactly. And also, if they can't move their arms around, they're not going to be able to be able to draw the gun quickly enough. And they fight in their suits as well. So I mean, you know, and the materials then were a lot heavier, no doubt. So they probably needed to have something that was going to be. Um, looser and could move a little bit yeah better. so well, the, there's only so much they the could do the sick tailor was a chap called anthony sinclair the shirts were from turnbull and assa and i imagine because again don't forget they wouldn't have had a huge huge budget to throw at this i think in total the film cost just over a million dollars um and they had to be quite economical with everything so i'm guessing they wouldn't have had the budget like they do nowadays and so nowadays um, you know, for a Daniel Craig film, they might have 10 to 20 of each suit made at various different sizes so that as he moves through a scene, things that are very static, the suit is more fitted. And then when the action, when there's more action and there's more moving around and running and jumping, the suits are actually much bigger in size. They so, wouldn't have had the budget to do that in those days. So you've read the books as well. So going back to the, the collab with CIA... Is the CIA collaboration prevalent in the Doctor No book as I've well? I've not read Doctor No. You've not read no, Doctor No? I've not is read the, a, only, a, the, the, only, other books? the only Fleming book I've read is uh, Casino Royale. So the, only, so the only reason that there's this collaboration with the CIA and this kind of mix-up with the Americans is so that they can have a, a combined sort of production with the American sort of producers. Is that the reason why, or are they all... Oh, I see what you're wondering. Um, I don't know is the answer to that, but I will find out for you. But you'll have to wait a month because I need to let the audience know as well. And uh, or I can actually look it up if you want. Yeah, I'll I'll quickly look it up while we talk about while you talk about another character, Quarrel, the boat guy. Yeah, and his bright red (laughs) T-shirt, which is you had one of those exactly the. So did you when we worked at Comet, matey. Um, yes, we wore bright red t-shirts as. Uh, they weren't that. They weren't that bright. Yeah, they weren't as bright as that. I mean, you know, the kind of guy that. I mean, could they not have had a word with him before they took him on this adventure to say, "Could you just tone it down a little bit, mate? Because the bad guys are going to spot you from like a mile away." Yeah, well, it's, it's the thing. It's you know, suspend disbelief, isn't it? That's what it's all about. Yeah. Um. I mean, the, the, I've got to say, the bits kind of in the middle, um, you know, that kind of period where they where the bad guys are trying to figure out and trying to um, fleece out where James Bond is and who he is and what business he has on the island. You know, James Bond wants to look at the island. No one will take him. This is the only guy that will do it. And it's only when he actually gets on the island that's when I that's when I get really excited and, and interested in the film again. Uh, so the the bits in between, I've got to be honest, while they, they did stitch the film together, you know, and they're important to the film, I'm more excited and interested by the beginning and the end. I'm a starters and dessert kind of guy, what can yeah. I say? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think... So to go back to what you were asking about whether they changed the story to kind of get the CIA involved and, you know, sort of the American producers and all that sort of thing. So it's from an interview here and a uh, chat called Paul Duncan. The 43-page treatment, dated September the 7th, 1961, uses only a few superficial elements from the novel. 
Honey Ryder, a Chinese girl, Felix Leiter, Bond CIA pal, and the Jamaican setting. The villain of the piece is Buckfield, an arms smuggler, who plans to stuff a ship full of explosives and blow it up in the Panama Canal under the Cuban flag, thus creating a profitable demand for his wares. Although the storyline was rejected, the writers were trying to utilise the real-world tension between East and West after the disaster of the Bay of Pigs invasion early in 1961 and anticipated the Cuban Missile Crisis, which started in October the following year and found the world on the brink of nuclear war. Um... So right, that makes sense. Okay, it, they were, yeah. So they were basically kind of more influenced by what was going on on around the time than you know anything for the sort of benefit of the film. I think the only problem yeah. that because that's the thing when they were when they were making the film, the whole Bay of Pigs uh, crisis was going on because it was sixty one. Bay of Pigs happened, and the film came out in sixty two. Mm. So you're probably making it around the time when that was going on. Yeah. So probably had to be a bit sensitive. Yeah. Exactly. They basically find out that Strangways was trying to pinpoint the origin of this radio jamming signal that was coming from Jamaica. And Quarrel reveals that before Strangways died, he'd been collecting mineral samples from an island called Crab Key. Bond basically uh, tracks down this local geologist called Professor Dent um, and makes some inquiries with him about the samples and Crow Key. Um, but then he's not happy with Professor Dent's answers. Professor Dent basically says the samples are just kind of, you know, they're normal. There's nothing special about them or anything. There's nothing special yeah. about them. Um, whereas uh, we later find out, obviously, that they were radioactive because of all the stuff that Dr. No is up to on his little base. So then Dent travels to Crab Key to meet this mysterious owner of the island, tell him that Bond's kind of turned up. And that's where we first hear the voice of Dr. No. Um, and I need to, I'm really gagging to look up if the character, even in the film, is meant to be Chinese and they got a British actor to play him. Yeah, um, I don't think he actually necessarily had any No, 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 no. Specific... Uh, sorry, I answered my own question. I actually, um, because later in the film, it's explained when they sit down to dinner, when Bond and Honey are held captive, that he is half, uh, I think half Chinese, half German or Austrian, something like that. Okay. And then he basically, head, so he, he kind of headed up something for China and Bond says that's quite surprising that they would let someone who's not pure-blooded, you know, run their thing. That makes, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. You're, see, I'm, 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 I'm totally fresh on this, whereas you're, what, what are you on? So you've done From, from Russia With Love. Yeah, um, I've done uh, Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah. And... Have you done Thunderball? No, what happened was, I thought that the next one in the list was... Um, Diamonds are forever. No. So the next one on my streaming list was um, was it says the next one on this list is this. Mm-hmm. And then when I look back on it, because it seemed quite far down the track, and it looked like Sean Connery had aged quite yeah. a bit. Um, and I just thought that don't make sense. And I look back over it, and I've missed about three. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I just have to go back. So over you need it. to go back to Thunderball then. Yeah, yeah. Thunderball, and there's another one as yeah. well. Yeah, but I mean, so, you're yeah. still you sort of further ahead than me and considering that we're we've kind of set this as a once a month kind of thing it's going to take me ages to catch up i'm never going to catch up with you 
Um, apart from when we get to the Brosnan <laughs> and the Daniel Craig films, which I've seen many, many times, especially Goldeneye, Tomorrow yeah. Never Die. Anyway, sorry, we're, we're, we're going off piste here. The geologist, uh, Professor Dent, goes to, um, goes to see his overlord, and his overlord basically wants him to assassinate Bond, and he gives him a tarantula. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> sort of says go over go over to that go over to the cage. So he goes over to the cage and there's this cute little tarantula well not little, it's massive tarantula in there. I thought he was gonna make him put his hand in, but he doesn't. He just makes him pick it up and then he takes it with he just takes it with him. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like um uh with that scene where he's speaking to him and then he's got that booming voice. It's almost like Wizard of Oz where yeah. they all go in and meet the yeah. wizard. And it's like, you know, there's a projection of it. You don't actually see who it is. But then, you know, the Wizard of Oz is revealed. And I'm sure for the people who view the um, the villain in this film, they're probably a little bit underwhelmed when they see it's just a geeky-looking guy who's uh, a bit obsessed about taking over the world. Yeah. You know, so, it's almost short man syndrome. Yeah. So... Um. <laughs> He will talk about his hands later as well because it really reminded me of another villain from uh, uh, from our from pop culture and our childhood. We'll come on to that. Um, so, I mean, just just to go back to Professor Dent, actually, the way that that he dresses uh, is very much like uh, I don't know a, a geography teacher in summer. Uh, you know, sort of getting to the end of the summer term. So, sort of very kind of ill-fitting linen. You know, massive notch lapels, three button, you know, cream linen trousers. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure for that sort of person of that age back in the early sixties, I'm sure that was very cool. You know, so. yeah. I mean, it it did suit him. Uh, you know, it's very sort of you know older English guy type of sort of thing. But it's it's hard though because that whole period was getting to the point where you know rock and roll, you know, was in its height. And so they were trying to find something that was going to, you know, that was going to be something different. And it probably went against the grain in terms of some of the other films that were out because they were trying to appeal to, you know, this new breed of teenagers. And I don't think it necessarily appealed to them. Um, And but they couldn't do something that was trying to be of the time completely either. They had they found quite a decent balance, but it was never easy to get every style right for all the characters and I think he was one yeah. of them. No, exactly. We didn't talk about Bond's um you know when he leaves his room and uh, you mentioned it at the very beginning when uh, you know Bond uh, after meeting Trench he uh when he leaves his hotel room just beforehand he puts a strand of hair across the closet yeah. door and then he dusts dust sort of talcum powder onto the uh latches of his briefcase um a very old school way of sort of working out whether someone's interfered with things when he gets back um and it's interesting that he kind of comes back and realizes that some someone's obviously been in there and then it's revealed it's trench who's sort of standing there completely naked and all but for one of his shirts and wearing a pair of high heels kind of playing you know indoor golf i don't know what you Plen- call those things playing some golf yeah, yeah. um <laughs> but then the thing that you kind of miss, because, you know, we're, we're thinking, OK, this is the first one he's going to sleep with as we, you know, start playing James Bond bingo. Um, 
she's obviously the person that's actually been searching through all this stuff. Yeah. yeah. But I only realised that now. <laughs> <laughs> because cause she was quite distracting. And I don't mean it in an Ursula Andrus way. I mean, she was distracting in that it was a... Who was she played by? Sylvia tra- played by Eunice Gayson, which is, you know, a very sort of 60s, 50s, 40s English name. But she, the makeup she had sort of, you know, it was like they were trying to make her look a bit oriental with a stupid wig. And also, I don't know if you noticed, but her eyebrows looked like when Mr. Potato Head in Toy Story kind of gets upended and his bits go on in the wrong place because one eyebrow was in a normal place and the other eyebrow would literally look like it was on top of her head. And I realised that's the actress sort of doing that one eyebrow lifting thing that I can't do that all women seem to be able to do, uh, especially when they tell us to do the washing up and we pretend that we didn't hear them. Um, And some guys can do, but I can't do. Um, But it did just look really, really odd. And maybe that's where my very high resolution copy of this film did not help because she looked awful. No. <laughs> but anyway, she was very distracting. And I, I would imagine maybe Bond got distracted by that because he doesn't seem to sort of realise she's on the wrong side until, you know, she kind of directs him to her place a bit later on. And, you know, then he kind of clocks the telephone conversation, everything that she's trying to detain him for a couple of hours and and all of that sort of stuff. Did you what did you kind of think about his first amorous encounter? I mean for me it's you know I would say that the really really great part of it was when Ursula Andress uh came out. And the funny thing was we're is we're talking that, about trench here. I know we're talking about trench but I'm I'm kind of over you just, yeah, <laughs> you really want to get to Andrus, don't you? Well, it's only it's only because um, in many ways he's trying to. You, you get the sense that he's there to kind of like uh, be the sort of like you know be the the strong dominant force, you know, male dominant force. But the reality was, she was doing fine before he showed up. She was making money from those shells and selling them, and then when he showed up. He completely screwed up that entire operation, <laughs> and she ended up getting captured. <laughs> so it just completely, and she was just—they let her just kind of like, you know, do whatever she wanted to do. But then when he showed up, it was, you know, she had to kind of, uh, she was, she became the Bond girl, and just to, you know, a side kind of, yeah, to, she got kind oh, of sort of demoted very, very quickly, didn't she? Um, mm. I mean, but you know, just before he got, to, he gets to the island and he meets Honey. He um, has to deal with Professor Dent, who's obviously trying to kill him with that tarantula. And um, interesting fact uh, about the the making of is that um, they filmed it the first time around with a glass partition between Connery and the tarantula, so that. You know, the idea was to film through it as if the tarantula was crawling over him. But when they looked back... Yep, very Pinewood Studios. Yeah. Very Pinewood Studios. They They do that in a lot of those films. Yeah, so when they looked back at it, um, the director decided that he did not like the way it looked on film. And so they got a poor stuntman in to double for Connery. 
Um, so all of the close-up shots with the tarantula crawling on the body are the poor stuntman, and he said it was the most terrifying experience of his life to date. Yeah. Um, and then obviously, yeah. You, and that's it. When you look back at that scene, you can see how that was then cut together. So yeah, I thought that was just really interesting. Um, and then Strangways obviously comes. Sorry, not Strangways. Dent comes to sort of finish the job. Once uh, you know, Bond has basically confirmed that the rock samples that Strangways had collected were actually radioactive, meaning there was something bigger going on on, on the island. Uh, he then kills Dent and then gets to the island to the bit that you want to talk about is the introduction of Honey Rider. What's really cool about it is, you know, in this film, the women typically are independent women that are very much their own people. You know, they don't need anyone else. And so even though it's very much a kind of scene is very sort of male chauvinist and very much about, um, you know, the man basically takes what he wants and that's it. From what I've seen in the early James Bond films, the women are actually quite independent. They've got their own money. They've, they've got their own resources. I mean, the Honey Rider. Yeah, OK, her name's Honey Rider, you know, but, you know, she's an independent entrepreneurial woman. She's on an island. She's found a niche, carved a niche for herself. She sells shells for, you know, a lot of money at the time. And she's doing it by herself. She doesn't have anyone telling her to do it. She's doing it for herself. Um, you know, but she happens to be absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. You know, she's, she doesn't have the kind of ravages of like modern day women where everyone's got the fake tan or, um, you know, plastic or anything, or anything like that. She's just a normal, and she was an athlete at the time when she did the film, uh, or she she was a retired athlete. Um, I think was she from Hungary, Cilarendis, um, or was So she, she was. She certainly. She was. I think. I think she's Hungarian. She's Swiss, no, that's, actually, she was born Swiss. in Switzerland. Okay. In Ostermundigen. Right. Probably haven't pronounced yeah. that properly, so, but Swiss Swiss mother and German father. Right, yeah. So you, so there's that whole, you know, background of, you know, athletic, you know, European women. And she was perfect for the part. You know, she looked amazing. It, that's what struck me about these films is the fact that we see it and there's certain things that are completely not, you know, politically correct to say now. But they actually did a lot for women at the time. Well, in fact... And in actual fact, she has quite a dark tale to tell because obviously Bond encounters her on the island and um, and then all of a sudden the soldiers on the boat come and, you know, shoot at them and so on and then say that they're going to come back with, with dogs. Um, and while they're holed up, she, sell, she tells Bond quite a dark story from her youth. You know, she was sexually abused and so she took her revenge by you know having the guy off using a black widow spider and he suffered for a week yes. before he died um to which bond kind of you know sort of says well don't make a habit out of it which i i imagine to be sort of tongue-in-cheek to say don't do that to me oh but but yeah. at the yeah. same you know sort of looking back I, th- I think they did such a good job with that sort of little backstory to her, making her more than meets the eye, more than just kind of innocent eye candy that can't fend for herself. Well, you know, obviously we're going to talk about what happens afterwards once they get to the actual lair of Dr. No, but up to this point, you're thinking, 
Okay, fine. Well, she's not just some dolly bird that's come out of the sea in a bikini that collects shells. I mean, there's more to her than that, and she can probably look after herself. I wish almost that they didn't have Bond make that sort of line about don't make a habit out of it. I wish they just sort of left it at her story. Yeah. But, you know, in any case, they then just throw all of that in the bin by, as you quite rightly said a little while ago, suddenly she becomes a sort of helpless, you know, leave him alone, leave him alone, don't hurt him. Um, or, no, I want to stay yeah. with you. You know, rather than, you know, sort of, uh, listen, you know, I was here before you, mate, and I don't know what the hell all this is about. I just want to go back to collecting my shells and go back to my sort of peaceful yeah. life. Yeah, because she must have known she must have known her way around the island to be able to evade capture for so long. Or it's not like they were ignoring her. They wouldn't have been happy about her doing that. No one else was uh, anywhere near the island. Everyone else was scared of it. So what what did she do? Or what was it about her that made her not fearful of it and not give a toss and just carry on with what she was doing? And then all of a sudden she's captured because some guy shows up and ruins her whole operation, yeah. basically. I think, um, you know, part of the backstory that she, you know, the story that she tells Bond about what happened to her when she was younger and, you know, her having to deal with that in the most extreme way, justified as well, might I add, um, in case anyone asks me. She is a survivor and she is able to look after herself. And you're absolutely right. She probably does know her way around the island. And she talks about the dragon when Coral mentions the dragon as well you know they've both seen this dragon and it breathes fire and it's got ears and a tail and and teeth and so on but she's obviously you know sort of kind of got used to kind of evading all the bad people that are sort of around there so she can just go about her quiet business of collecting shells and they probably actually do know about her but they just see her I think she actually says it at one point um actually that you know, she just collects her shells minding her own business and they don't seem to be bothered about her at all. And, you know, why Why would yeah. they? They can clearly see that in in their eyes that she's potentially harmless. Um, but then speaking about Quarrel and the dragon, <laughs> um, the dragon does turn up and this is the first real gadget of the film and it belongs to the baddies and it's basically what can only be described as an armoured tank with a dragon's face drawn on it and it literally spits fire out and poor quarrel is in the line of said fire (laughs) and it was just really sudden this thing turns up out of nowhere and they're trying to shoot at it and then you know bond sort of tells coral you go up ahead and take out take out the driver while i take out the lights and the tires yeah thanks bond you take the easy job um, and then yeah. the thing just <laughs> throws out this flame and absolutely cooks the poor guy. We had our hands over our mouths. We were so shocked. We were like, oh, my God. And it was, and again, it was quite violent um, how he met his end. Yeah. It was awful. Yeah. I think that was another thing about that time period because, like, in terms of the ratings that they had for films, it was either suitable for all or it was A, which meant that you could have, that you could watch it if... Uh, an adult was present or it was an X and it wasn't quite an X, but it was, it was just about an A and they allowed it to be an A as long as like children were present. So there was a lot of things that they could get away with. There wasn't any nudity and there wasn't any really, you know, there wasn't any foul language. So it was enough to kind of keep it within that, you know, there wasn't any sort of obvious sort of murder scenes like 
you know, Psycho was released the year year or two before, for yeah. example. You know, and it wasn't a Western, you know, with loads of violence. So it, it kind of fell in that in-between bit. So there was in, just enough violence, but not quite enough to make it yeah. next. Well, speaking of nudity, yeah. Bond and Honey obviously get captured and they're taken to, to Dr. No's lair, we'll call it. And obviously the first thing that they're made to do is to strip down and take their clothes off and then get all the radiation washed off them because they've obviously been in the swamps and they're highly radioactive and they've obviously got all of that radiation on themselves. Um, and I thought there was a bit of a flash of Ursula Andress's, um No, there wasn't. They, they talk about this, but there wasn't. I she imagine was she was wearing protected. a skin suit or something to protect her modesty. They, yeah, she was protected. Yeah, she was protected. They would never have allowed that. I mean, even, you know, the films at that time, there was... There was no nudity allowed in any film what? at all. What, so what, what year was Barbarella? It was later than that. That would have been like that would have that would have been about sixty seven, sixty eight, something like that. But um, that was acceptable because there was at that time there was um, a lot of movement into the sixties with free love and stuff like that, where you could show films like that, and there was more of that available. You're um, right, but yeah. in the early 60s, Barbarella, it was 19, not... 1968, you're right. But there was, you were never allowed to show any kind of nudity. I mean, even the film... Do you know the film Psycho? That, that's the very first film where you actually see a flushing toilet. Oh, wow. Before that, you don't see a flushing, before that, you don't see a flushing toilet in a Hollywood film. Hmm. Um, and even though she's dead in the shower, she's wearing a skin suit, so you don't see any of her, you know? Um, they believe me, they would have definitely covered it. Yeah. Well, this is where. But, and you've got the ultra high definition. You could have, you know, slowed it down to really find yeah, no, out. But my wife was sitting next to me, <laughs> so couldn't really. Um, oh, it's on my iPhone though. I could actually uh, go back and have a look. Um, the yeah. <laughs> I Delete won't. Cookies. I won't do that. I'm not that sad. <laughs> um, but I might. Um, in the interest of you know accuracy. Uh, so anyway, they they they. Uh, this is where we actually first meet Dr. No in the flesh. And uh, he is a, a Chinese-German criminal scientist who has prosthetic metal hands due to radiation exposure. And it really reminded me of um, Han from uh, Enter the Dragon. Now, Enter the Dragon was <laughs> 10 years later. So, you know... Yes, he was. Obviously, you could... Uh, well... Han obviously was modelled on Doctor No, right? Had to have been Han's Island. No, I don't think so. All of that. You don't think so? I think I'm. Um, I, I would like. I would like to think, although um, it was billed as you know, Bruce Lee in Enter the Dragon was the Cantonese James Bond. You know, I would like to think that Han was a was a character from a, a Hong Kong based film as opposed to an American film. I'd like I'd like to think that they got their inspiration from something that they had produced from years ago years gone by rather than just taking it from Hollywood. Yeah. But they did but it was a, it was, you know, Bruce Lee was James Bond in Enter the Dragon. Yeah. That was what that was oh, all totally. about. Totally. Uh, is what it was meant to be. Uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if Warner Brothers thought that they were going to be kicking off some sort of franchise with it and um, had you know, Bruce Lee sadly not died. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure they would have done. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, because an absolute tragedy, tra you know, tragedy that he only made 
although he made hundreds of films in Hong Kong, he's only really made just the four big what, ones. Four films. Yeah, and then Game of Death you know? technically doesn't quite count because it wasn't finished. And I have seen. Yeah, I have con- seen. But the concept of Game of Death is is fantastic. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it was going to be the ultimate martial arts movie. I mean, the thing with Game and Game of Death, and again, we're digressing here, but the thing with Game and Game of Death, since we're talking about it, is that thank God he filmed the Pagoda stuff first. Yeah. Because um, I don't know if you've ever seen Game of Death, but obviously the actor they got an actor in to sort of do the rest of it and. It is not good. Oh, yes. I, no, no. I have seen it but years mm. ago. But I mean, like, when I think of Game of Death, I just think about the fact that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar happened to be in Hong Kong and Bruce Lee was there at the same time. He says, right, well, you're here now. Let's just shoot a scene quickly while yeah. you're here. And that's what they did. And then everything else kind of, like, blossomed They had the relationship because, you know, he was he was teaching... Uh, he he was teaching uh, Abdul Jabbar as well, wasn't he? Anyway, we digress because we're supposed to be talking about Doctor No, so let's get back to it. Um, so Bond, uh, so they have dinner with Doctor No, and Bond learns that he was a former member of a Chinese crime gang called the Tong. Um, up until he stole ten million dollars from them in gold, which by today's standards and Definitely by Dr. Evil standards does not sound like much at all. Oh, in the 60s, that would have been a huge <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Amount. Absolutely. Huge um, But he's now working for the secret organisation known as Spectre. Can you, can you remember what Spectre sa- stands for, Phil? No! <laughs> it's the... <laughs> and this is the problem with the Spectre acronym, is that... It doesn't serve its purpose because no one, no one can remember what it stands for. It stands for the Special Executive for Counterintelligence, Terrorism, Revenge and Extortion. Fantastic. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a nice, easy one to remember. It just falls off the tongue, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly. <laughs> so, interesting thing for me here is because I, I do know that Blofeld makes an appearance, if not in the next film, definitely the one after, but, but Blofeld is coming. And Blofeld, obviously, is the head of Spectre. I'm now wondering, having previously thought that the Daniel Craig movies were the only ones that were linked in any way, I'm now wondering if this first set of Connery movies are actually linked together because Spectre is the sort of concurrent theme through all of them. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. You will find out. Don't tell me. You will find out. You'll yeah. find out. But that's what I'm wondering. Um, so, so yeah, so that's actually quite exciting. So they're basically busy hacking into or, you know, jamming the radios of, uh, of the space launch at Cape Canaveral um, using radio beams, which they obviously transmit from the base in Jamaica. And uh, this is to demonstrate Spectre's power. And he basically, the reason we're all sort of wondering at this point, why hasn't he just killed Bond? But the reason why is because he wants Bond to join them, um, which obviously Bond refuses to do. Um, and then Dr. No gets very, very angry, has Honey taken away, and then Bond is imprisoned. Then he manages to escape through an air vent. And I actually found this kind of entire scene of him, you know, first electrocuting himself on the grill, and then he climbs through the air vent system, and then there's that sort of almost boiling hot water that sort of flushes down the pipe, and he has to deal with that and so on. And there's a vulnerability to him there 
that I've never seen with the Sean Connery character that's never been my perception of him because I haven't seen these films in full. Um, but uh, I thought it was very, very well done and it added more layer and nuance to the character for me. Yeah, and, and I would say from what I've seen so far that there are still traces of that sensitivity, although he doesn't necessarily show it or he's told or the direction of it from the other people that make those films tell him to kind of like tone it down in future films. But certainly in this one, um, they don't really know what to expect and uh, they allow him to kind of do it in such a way that does show that side of him. Because I think at this point, they're not 100% sure whether or not they're going to be a success. You know, they had however many... I think they had six set up for... um, uh, for the actor that was going to play James Bond, mm-hmm. and they they had many other actors before they chose Sean Connery, um, you know. But so I suppose they needed to have different dimensions, and they weren't sure what direction it was going to go. But they knew it would evolve throughout the six films, and I think it was just interesting how it all began and how it yeah. started. And we can definitely touch on, um, you know, other casting choices for Bonds. Maybe when we talk about the next film on the next one because otherwise we could be here forever because they're just so just such oh, yeah. a wealth of information and stories to go through so so he escapes through the air vent and then he knocks out the guy in the hazmat suit and he puts the suit on and that's how he's able to get into the control center of the base this next sequence in the base where he sort of disrupts all of that and stops the um whatever it is they're doing from disrupting the launch of the rocket over in Florida. I've obviously seen some kind of volcanic base with buggies driving around, <laughs> a la Dr. Evil. I might have been getting it mixed up with Austin Powers, actually, but I'm pretty sure I have in a <laughs> in a Connery Bond film, but I don't know which yes. one it is. But I must... But I, I thought it was yeah, this funny. one, and so I was kind of a bit pleasantly surprised that oh hang on then this is not suddenly gone to a moon base it's still on this island in Jamaica and they're basically all just sitting behind controls not really doing much apart from pressing buttons and shouting at each other but then it all moves really really quickly because he sort of goes to the guy that was sort of ramping up the radiation frequency or whatever and then they've got that sort of uranium rods or radiation rods or whatever they are underwater and it's obviously all boiling hot with radiation and then he knocks that guy out and then all chaos breaks loose and everybody starts running and trying to escape and then dr no goes to go and beat seven shades of you know what out of him with his metal hands and then bond kind of gets the better of him on that little platform and then all of a sudden like you blink and all of a sudden it's like dr no's screaming for his life and he's boiled to death and his hands are yeah, clawing at the yeah. thing. But it just happened so quickly. Yeah. It's not none of the deaths in this are long drawn out. It's all quick and efficient, for want of a better yeah. word. And that's what his his movement is in the book. As you say, you know, it's all about quick, efficient movements. So that's all that he needs to do. And he does it as quickly as possible possible. Yeah. He, he Occam's razors yeah. them. Um, and then so obviously the last thing that he needs to do is find honey and and free her 
Uh, obviously, you know, we know that Bond villains love tying people up and not actually killing them. I mean, if they actually just got on and killed them, then probably they'd, their nefarious plans would actually come to fruition a bit more often. Um, so he unties her and they manage to escape the island by boat and then the whole thing blows up. Um, and uh, and then we get what I know is a classic sort of Bond ending from the older movies, especially the Roger Moore ones. Um I don't know if they carry this on with the Bond with the with the Connery films, but definitely we see this a few times in the Roger Moore movies. Whether he's up in space on a boat in a plane, it doesn't really matter with that guy. Um, you know, he's getting laid before the end credits. Um, but uh, yeah, they get down to some loving in the boat, uh, and then Felix Felix kind of turns up, finds him adrift, throws him a rope, um, and then as they embrace again. Connery just lets the rope slip out of his hands and sort of end the film. And that's it. It was all over in the blink of an eye. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. But it then, but immediately at the end of the film, it then tells you, and you'll see James Bond again next in from Russia with love. And so you straight away, you're right. Right. I've got to see the next film, you know, and it's that, that kind of thing, and it's just—it's a really nice way of actually sort of moving to the next film. Yeah, because well. I don't think—I don't um, think they wasted any time in sort of moving on to film from Russia with Love. Um, I mean, that will be my next sort of bit of homework. But from Russia with Love, literally came out the following year, nineteen sixty-three. It's straight up. It's pretty much straight afterwards. And I think you know, because a lot of it was filmed in Pinewood, it wouldn't have surprised me if they had you know went from that project. The From Russia with Love project shot some of those scenes as well, sort of like you know, as a you know, carryover, you know, where you got, went from one to the other, um, because they were in Pinewood at the time, so um, it would have been easy for them to do that. They probably didn't, but they would have known that they were going to do um, from Russia, Russia with Love, so they might have done some scenes. Yeah, about it. I, I was actually really impressed with this film. Um, you know, I had to keep remembering that it's 1962. But I was really impressed with it. I thought Connery was absolutely fantastic, really. Um, and I can I can see why there are people who, you know, steadfastly refuse to budge from the position that he is the best Bond. So I'm really, really looking forward to seeing more of his movies. I think the other thing is that, you know, they could have very easily um, used certain positions to be exploitative towards um, other people in it you know the the jamaicans are in it they're not being uh they're not exploiting them they're not uh they're not using anything racist or anything it is you know certain people are the villains certain people are the heroes you know there isn't an obvious stereotypical sort of um characterization of any uh particular um background which they could have easily done at that time as well and they and they shied away from that which is another reason why the film has stood up mm. for so long so far out of the ones I've seen, Doctor No is still my favourite. But, um, you know, time will tell if, uh, you know, if I get to, you know, as time goes on to see if I get to enjoy any of the other I'm, ones. I'm really so. excited to see From Russia With Love now because um, that's hailed as being the best of the Connery era. Um, and I, I, re- I really, really want to see how I feel about that once I've seen it. We haven't talked about the score. The score is just that one, you know, that, you know, that... There isn't really anything else. It's that just, and everything the, just kind of feeds. But the James off Bond that. theme is played quite a lot through it. 
Whereas in later films, it's used sparingly, usually through action sequences and so on, and then you get little riffs of the theme through other parts as well. Um, but it's timeless, isn't it? I mean... Yeah, absolutely. You know. It's like there's that one note that the symphony puts in when um, the end of the uh, soundtrack, whatever the theme song is, they'll have that note that kind of goes... I can't even describe it. It's just... Ding, you know, that sort of... I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean? That end sort you of that, that, guitar that, sort it, of... That's... That, 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 that drowns mm. down and that's and that's at the end of every um soundtrack no matter what yeah. it is it'll have that and it's just it just it just feeds nicely into um you know either introducing the bad guys or bringing up some tragedy or there'll be something uh that you need to pay attention yeah. to just and the James Bond theme has easily got to be one of the most, if not the most, recognisable film theme ever. I mean, that comes on, it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, you instantly recognise that as James Bond. Um, I mean, David Arnold, who did most of the composition work throughout the Bond era, um, I think he he described it really beautifully um, uh, as a bebop swing vibe coupled with that vicious, dark, distorted electric guitar, definitely an instrument of rock and roll, represented everything about the character you would want. It was cocky, swaggering, confident, dark, dangerous, suggestive, sexy, unstoppable. And John Barry did it in two minutes. Sums it up beautifully for it me. It was really good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I must say, uh, the... Films that David Arnold's produced the soundtrack for, those are the ones I remember most in terms of, in terms of soundtrack. I've always loved it. He production. did such a great job. Um, I mean, you know, I had the I had the scores to Goldeneye, um, all of the Brosnan ones, apart from Die Another Day, actually. <laughs> I was so repulsed by that you're film. Very, yeah, you're... <laughs> We do still have to review we that. Do. We do. Oh, no, we are. We are. We are. Um, the, um... Do you know what, though? It's, you know what? That film was released like 20 plus years ago. We might be able to kind of like watch it this time and think, ah, actually, it's not yeah. so bad. You know? <laughs> yeah, maybe. But, Mate, you know, we could. I loved what David Arnold did with the World Is Not Enough score. It was absolutely... And actually, Tomorrow Never Dies as well. Um, I think he's... You know, he's just such a great composer. And he, he did some really great sort of, you know, kind of off-piece work with the propeller heads as well. They sort of did a, a, a sort of revamp of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is just absolutely superb. I mean, back in the days when there were no speed cameras and you could, you know, drive as fast as you shouldn't, um, it was just the best thing to have on in the car. I used to do a long run from Croydon to Essex every day <laughs> when I worked up there. Uh, but yeah, just absolutely oh, awesome. Yes. But yeah, no. So the, the John Barry theme, absolute classic. Absolutely loved it. Um, any, um, any, anyone outside of Ursula Andress and um, Sean Connery that stood out for you? I would say like the first sort of time we see the the kind of the chauffeur uh, who's te- who's picking up at the airport, and the kind of and the way that they tried to portray the villains and and tried to present portray the uh, deceit um, in trying to put that on screen. Um, and they had to make it slightly obvious that this was a bad guy, but it had to be someone that could still be semi-trusted by 
Bond, but Bond still had to check him out. Goes, did you did you ask for someone to pick me up? I said, no, nah, no, we didn't. It's just well, I got I have anyway. To, I have yeah. to confess, <laughs> Phil, that he actually reminded me a little bit of you. Oh yeah. <laughs> In what way? I don't know, I just sort of looked at him. Actually, for a second, I could see Daniel in there. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Daniel, for listeners that don't know, is Phil's elder, uh, youngest son and my godson. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think more than anything, it was the fact that Connery wasn't really sweating and this guy had, like, sweat patches under his arms as if he was, you know, in Dragon's Den or something. Um uh, so yeah, okay. So it was the kind of villains for you and the the characterization and I I I like that. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's it's very hard to sort of get it right, you know. Because everyone's at that time was a real sort of caricature, mm-hmm. unless a film was made by Alfred Hitchcock at that time. You know, if it was Alfred Hitchcock, it was very hard to figure out who the villains were, and it drew you in and it made you watch it more closely. But this was a bit more of an adventure, so there was there was a little bit more of a a thing where they had to make it slightly obvious, but not really, really in your face. Um, and it was just and I and I like the way that they they put that on screen. And then as the characters and the films have evolved, um, they've actually done they've kept it kind of to that, but at the same time, you know, there is a little bit more, particularly you know as times. Most most recently, you really really see the uh, the motives of uh, the bad guys, which you don't really see in these early films. They're just mad. They're just evil. They're just deranged, and there's nothing anyone can do about it. And only violence can mm-hmm. destroy violence. You know that's it. You know there's no sort of there's no sort of um, no. you know mental health counselling or anything like that in these films. It's just pure on violence. And shooting well, on and the, sub- on and the subject of violence song, and mental you know? health, um, <laughs> when it was released, Doctor No received quite a mixed reception from the critics. Um, so I'm going to read some of the comments to you here. Um, so Time Magazine referred to Bond as a blithering bounder and a great big hairy marshmallow who almost always manages to seem slightly silly. See, he wasn't even that hairy. I, I mean, he was a bit hairy. Not compared to it Daniel Craig. Really that. Daniel Craig is like a baby. Yeah. He's hairless. But I mean, like you know, you would be if you just like wax everything. But I mean, like it wasn't that hairy. It's like a, I mean, for the time, you know, they all looked like you know really hairy bodies. They never took care of themselves in that regard. From hairy bodies to heavenly bodies, the Vatican condemned Doctor No. They described it as a dangerous mixture of violence, vulgarity, sadism, and sex. I bet they loved that review. I bet it so- I bet it sold by the bucket load after that. So I bet they absolutely loved that review. Um, the Kremlin weighed in with the following. Bond is the personification of capitalist evil. Yep. Awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hang on, you said film reviews. You said the Kremlin. You said the Vatican. These aren't film reviews. Well, I said, I said Where? critics. Critics could be anyone, Phil. Okay. Okay, so film reviews. Uh, the Guardian, um, they actually liked it. They said it was a very neat and gripping thriller and uh, it was very crisp and well tailored. Br- British, yeah, British press, they'll, they'll uh, support their own, yeah. fair enough, yeah. Um, Daily Express, they said Doctor No is fun all the way, even the sex is harmless. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. 
Fair enough. Like they'd know. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) Then a bit later on in 1986, uh, critical Danny Peary. So his review, cleverly conceived adaptation of Ian Fleming's enjoyable spy thriller. The picture has sex, violence, wit, terrific action sequences and colourful atmosphere. Connery, Andrus and Wiseman all give memorable for performances. There's a slow stretch in the middle, which you actually referred to. And Dr. No could use a decent henchman. I was almost wishing for like an odd job or Jaws. not jo- yeah, yeah, an odd, odd job, job or someone, yeah. you know, since there were some yeah. Asian people hanging around. I thought we might make an appearance. <laughs> uh, and uh, but odd job was actually a Roger Moore villain, wasn't he? Because wasn't he Scaramanga's guy? No, odd job was the big guy, wasn't he? No, 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 no. Odd job um, had the bowler hat, which would. Yeah, so he was in Diamonds. He was in Diamonds Are Forever. We'll come to that another one. But yeah, he was definitely a Sean Connery yeah. villain. So anyway, there we go. I mean, look on Rotten Tomatoes, which is what I always go by. Um, it has a ninety-five percent positive rating, which you know is about is about that's right. Pretty good. Yeah, that's as good as that's pretty much as good as yeah. it can get. Yeah. Um, so what I'd like to do with these films, uh, Phil, is uh, for each of us to give a rating out of ten. Um, I'm going to go with an eight. That's what my gut tells me. Um, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Couple of, I guess, slight problems, but I'm not sure if that's just because of the time that's passed and because I'm a child of this era, not that era. Um, but it was a really, really solid first entry. And I thought Connery was absolutely fantastic in the role. How about you? I'm giving it a seven out of ten, and the reason for that is it's very much a it's very much a starter and dessert. The, there's a lot in the middle that could have been actually sort of edited down for content. I understand why they did that with this film, though. I think the direction that it went in, they weren't they were not really sure um, what they wanted to do in terms of who they were going to portray. It may have even been that the Jack Lord character was going to be a staple that was going to be in it more regularly. They may, they may have wanted that. So they, that's probably why there was quite a few scenes um, with him in it. And it might've been similar to the persuaders where, you know, Tony Curtis and, and Roger Moore get together and they do a like, TV show where you've got an American and a Brit fighting crime. And they may have wanted to go down that angle. So it's probably why there was various different uh, directions in that regard. So that's, why I'm giving it a seven purely because I'm not sure at that time the direction it was going mm. into. Yeah, um, and they they establish it a little bit more in the later. Films. But the average critical rating across all reviews is currently seven point eight out of ten. So you and I are actually bang on, pretty much in line with with yeah. the general critical yeah. consensus over the last sixty odd years. I think I think the fact that there's like twenty five odd films here. While it's, you know, I'm reserving judgment, I may increase the rating later on, but based on what I've seen, you know, I want to, I'm not going to, I'm not saying it's a final judgment, but I think seven is is fair. Yeah. I'm trying to remember when Hawaii 5.0 was a thing, because I remember it being... It was later than this, much later. It wasn't that much later. It was 1968 to, to 1980. And I remember Jack Lord being a bit older. I mean, I was very, very young. I was like two or three years old. 
but I, I always remember the theme. I, I, I've never seen it. Yeah, I mean, I, I would guess it was reruns that I would have seen, you know, sort of after it finished in 1980. So I might have been seeing reruns in 83, 84 when I was about six or seven years old. And I, I just remember the title sequence because it was, you know, it was the music... And all of that, you don't know it. I know it, but I was. But I think I don't know. It just it just didn't it just didn't interest me. I was I was into A Team and Knight Rider. Yeah, so was I. A Team, Knight Rider, Airwolf, Blue Thunder, Street Hawk, Manimal, Incredible Hulk. You know. Street Hawk, blimey, that brings back memories. My goodness, <laughs> Street Hawk, all the vehicle days. ones. Remember, there was like this whole, oh, whole it period Street where there was Hawk, just there was, all, Air, was it Airwolf, Airwolf as well? Blue Thunder, the other helicopter one with uh, oh, Roy Schneider was in yeah, that. Yeah. Airwolf was it? Uh, yeah, Roy Schneider did a TV show. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Roy Schneider was... What, as the main character, the main actor? Yeah, see, we've gone off piece again because... Uh, Are you sure? Yeah, Blue Thunder. So there was Airwolf and Blue Thunder. My goodness. And um, Blue Thunder basically starred Roy Scheider. Yep, there you go. It must have cost a fortune to make that. He was a massive actor. Mm-hmm. Wow. Fair play to him. And then there Take was Airwolf, <laughs> which was the black and white <laughs> helicopter that was bulletproof and stuff with Jan Michael Vincent. All right. Yeah, oh yeah. yes, yes. Anyway, Goldo, the the full oh. guy, Lee Majors, Dukes of yeah, Hazard. Yeah, I saw Fall Guy. I used to watch Fall Guy. Yeah, I used to watch Dukes of Hazard. Of yeah. course, had the Dukes of Hazard car. Talking about um, this whole period of like Bond, I'm going to leave you with this one little story. When I was six years old, I went to the hospital. Um, I had an overnight stay in the hospital because I had an operation. All right, and uh, when I was when I recovered from the operation. My family came to see me and uh, the next day the, you know, I was going home. But because I had actually got through the operation, my dad bought me a Bond car, one of those Corgi mm-hmm. cars. Yeah, I remember. It was the shittest. It was the shittest Bond car out of all of them. Guess which one it was? Um, no idea. You tell me. It was the two. It it was the two CV Citroen from for your eyes only. My dad used to come back with Corgi cars, that and was, he'd buy me Maseratis, Ferraris, Aston Martins, all the cool ones. All he knew was it was a Bond car, and he thought Philip might like that. And it was a Citroen two CV, the the yellow yeah. one. My dad I bought do. me, um, and I thought it was great. But I wasn't really into Bond at that time. But it was I just saw it as a car. Le- later on, I saw For Your Eyes Only, and I saw it was the, the, what the girl was driving mm-hmm. down the hill and up yeah, the hill. We could have got you the Lotus Esprit. <laughs> but yeah, there was, I mean, out of all of the Bond cars, this was the one that he oh. got. I wish I kept the box. I bet it'd be worth a fortune yeah, now. I bet. <laughs> I'm going to leave you with um, with uh, something that Cubby Broccoli said when asked to comment on, um, you know, the success the the success of Doctor No, and obviously what they'd managed to achieve getting that film to the screen. And uh, and he said this. He said, "What mattered to me personally was that the big success of the film 
totally confirmed my belief in Bond when major studio producers were turning it down. The film cost a million dollars, but it took back worldwide more than 20 times that, with TV residuals still to come. I had to smile. United Artists had seen the test on Sean Connery and had asked if we could do better. The bookers, dubious about their inability to sell this limey truck driver to the American people, had expected it to die and selected an Oklahoma drive-in for the interment, which I think is the the sort of opening. All these forebodings had been royally blown away at the stunning premiere we had in London. Ian Fleming, who also had been nervous initially, shook hands with Harry and me afterwards, Harry Saltzman. It was wonderful, he said. We'd proved something else. Americans, far from not accepting British actors in British pictures, loved everything about Bond and they were ready for more. And I hope you're all ready for more because that's it for this episode. And thank you once again for joining us. Thank you so much for lending us your ears. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen and support the show. The Bondathon will continue next month with From Russia with Love. I'm so excited. I can't wait to see it. Make sure you don't miss a thing by hitting that subscribe button, and we will see you on the next one. <laughs> <laughs>